Welcome to Strange Sound. This is episode 31. I am Joe, proprietor of Strange Sound. I put the strange in Strange Sound. Well, somewhat strange anyway. I get a little bit strange. Sometimes. Especially when I'm contemplating recording another episode of our other podcast called This Is Big Green. Um, which is a very occasional podcast at this point. It used to be a monthly, but I won't go into detail about that. If you want to learn a little bit more about that, go to our website at big-green.net, and you can find out all you would like to know and perhaps more. Anyway, welcome to Strange Sound. Glad to be with you. Uh, I don't always do this, but I want to give my standard disclaimer. Once again, this podcast represents... Uh, only my own ideas and only my own opinions. Um, not my own ideas so much. <laughs> I pick up on a lot of other people's ideas. Actually, just my opinions about other people's ideas <laughs> and my own. Um, no one else's opinion is represented here other than me. This is really just me. Um, my opinions are not endorsed or shared by anyone that I'm associated with. Um, so just want to get that out there out front. As usual, uh, be glad to hear from you on anything that's discussed herein. Um, again, I know some people are listening. Um, yeah, so to those people, I say hello. And if you uh, care to leave either a voicemail or um, a message of some kind, please visit our um anchor.fm site at anchor.fm slash strange sound and uh, you'll find the means of talking back to me. Anyway, and I'm saying our again. I mean my. It's just me. It's just Joe. Anyway, wow, what a week. What a week, right? You don't need me to tell you this, but man, this has been just a week for the books. Unbelievable. I thought after Tuesday night, the presidential debate, I thought that that was about the limit, that it couldn't possibly get any more bizarre and, uh, I don't know, earth-shattering than that, but, uh, yeah, it did. It obviously did. Uh, President of the United States, as of this recording, is in Walter Reed Medical Center with COVID-19. Uh, tested positive for that, is showing symptoms of that. To what extent, we don't know because of um, basically the way they're handling this. They're they're keeping it quiet, which is not unusual. It's not, not terribly... Um, well, I think we're used to a higher level of disclosure than was traditional for the presidency. Um, I know that when Reagan got shot, they... they went into a fair amount of detail about 
about his situation when he had like a polyp removed. Uh, they went into a tremendous amount of detail about that, as I remember. I remember friends complaining about the fact that they were talking about, you know, sending a scope up up uh, Reagan's butt. Um, so it was a little, a little more information than most people were comfortable with at that point. But uh, previous to that administration, um, a lot of medical issues were kept quiet um, over the years. Uh, probably most famously Woodrow Wilson, right? Who uh, They kept a lot of things quiet about Woodrow Wilson when they were teaching us about his administration back in uh, – in grade school, junior high, high school, I mean, I had no idea the guy was to the degree that he was a racist. Um, I had no idea of that at all. I don't believe they ever discussed that. What they did teach us is that he was, you know, debilitated by a stroke and that they kind of kept that quiet. Um, they certainly kept um, medical details about other presidents quiet um, to some extent. Uh, Franklin Roosevelt, to some extent, Eisenhower, to to a larger extent, perhaps JFK. Um, Nixon's drinking, <laughs> that sort of thing. They tried to keep as quiet as possible. Um, but yeah, this, uh, so this is not anything new. They're not really going into a lot of detail, but these are early days. My guess is that by the time you're hearing this, we'll know quite a bit more uh, my um, my conjecture, and this is an uneducated guess, but given uh, Trump's position vis-a-vis um, the rest of humanity, <laughs> uh, that he will be given every opportunity to get better. And my guess is that he'll be just fine after a while. He's going to get the best care. He's going to have teams of scientists working on him nonstop. He's better situated than most people in his age group and in his, I mean, most people. He's better situated than practically anybody in his age group or his physical situation, given whatever underlying conditions he may have. And the fact that he's 74 years old and he's overweight and he's got other um, obvious things going on um, and not obvious things. Right. Uh, We don't really know what his physical condition is entirely, but we know a little bit about COVID and how how it um, how it affects people who are situated as he is um, just in the obvious dimensions of his of his uh, physical situation, if you will. Um, And COVID kills a lot of people in his age group and older. what percentage? I don't know. I mean, Zeke Emanuel, as of yesterday, was saying, you know, maybe 11% chance that he won't survive. It's really hard to measure that. I mean, I, I don't know how anybody could come up with the over-under on that, and I'm, I'm, I have actually absolutely no interest in that. Uh, I am not someone who roots for the disease, you know, I don't want anyone to suffer. I don't want anyone to die. Even if I don't like people, I don't wish death upon them. Uh, I'm funny that way. That's a place that I'm not willing to go. 
personally. I want Trump out of the presidency. I don't want him dead. And I mean, there's been a lot of discussion over the past few days about, you know, how destabilizing this is and what a what a desperately difficult situation that puts us in vis-a-vis national security. I don't really agree with that. I don't think the implications are so much um, what impact it would have on national security or stability or, you know, continuity. Um, Donald Trump is a terrible president. He's absolutely terrible. If he's missing from the White House, things are probably going to run more smoothly. (laughs) And I'm not saying things will go great. I'm not saying that policy will suddenly be more positive. I'm just saying (laughs) his absence isn't going to affect the quality of governance whatsoever. If anything, it'll raise it. Now, my concern is not so much for national security. My my own personal feeling is, you know, I hope he recovers. I hope his wife recovers. If anything, my hope would be that this would put the fear of COVID in him and bring home to him a little bit more how serious this thing is. My hope would be that it's just serious enough to give him an idea of how serious this thing is and that he should take it more seriously and that he should project more seriousness about this. I mean, just from an objective standpoint, that it is a dangerous disease and that people, particularly in his age group, but pretty much everyone should be cautious about this and should just take reasonable measures to avoid either contracting it themselves or passing it along to other people. Things like wearing masks, things like social distancing, things like observing restrictions on large gatherings. I mean, I work for an institution that tests us on a weekly basis. We do pool testing, um, and then those pool tests are checked for positivity if you're in a group that's that has a positive Um, reading, then they send you for individual tests. That's just because the institution that I work for has done tens of thousands of tests since the beginning of September, late, late August. So, um, that's the way they've, they've managed it. That's a reasonable level of caution. It seems to me, I don't know the degree to which they've been taking precautions within the White House. But if um, reports are to be believed, I'd I'd have to say not nearly cautious enough. And from what I understand, they're still using a test, a testing protocol in the White House uh, with White House staff that really is only useful for um, getting a reliable positive on people who have had who have a certain level of viral load, who have had the virus for a number of days, maybe like three or four days into showing symptoms, um, then it's it's something like 98 or 99% reliable. But at that point, it's kind of pointless, right? You've already been contagious for five, six, maybe even seven days. Who knows, right? So I'm not sure why they're, if that's true, if they're still using that type of test, I'm not sure why they're still doing that. It's obviously not working very well. Um, 
you're seeing not only the president and the first lady, but a lot of the people around them, uh, a number of people around them are, are turning a positive. A number of prominent Republican senators are, are turning up positive. Mike Lee, John Ronson, Ron Johnson, um, <laughs> and, uh, and others. Um, Tom Tillis. And, you know, look, these people have been acting in a massively irresponsible way. And we just saw them at a public event at the White House when Trump was announcing the his nomination of Amy Coney Barrett for Associate Justice on the Supreme Court, um, a large gathering of people without masks, cheek by jowl, sitting in in close, tight rows next to one another, talking to each other, interacting with one another, um, whispering in each other's ears, um, you know, glad handing each other. Absolutely no, no precautions taken there. Um, and a fair number of those people have turned up positive, right? Uh, Kellyanne Conway, one of them, um, seen at that event, you know, whispering in the ear of, uh, Bill Barr. So if I were Bill Barr, I'd get tested. I'm sure he has been. Uh, it's just, it's astonishing. It's just astonishing the degree to which these people are either in, in deep denial or just drinking their own Kool-Aid on this COVID issue and somehow feel like they're immune. I mean, in all honesty, I know this is not the same disease as, this is not the same virus as um, caused the pandemic in the early 20th century um, in 1919, 1920, um, the influenza epidemic that killed hundreds of thousands of people. I realized that that was a very different kettle of fish, but it was still a virus and it was still, it was still communicable through, um, airborne particles, right? So <laughs> it was very similar and things have not changed that much. Viruses that are communicated in that way are still just as contagious as they were back in 1919. And people discovered that back then and they took the same precautions. Even though we have more advanced medicine these days, that doesn't mean that advanced medicine can keep you from catching this virus. In the end, in the final analysis, it's a question of, you know, community spread and people, you know, catching it from one another and passing it on to five, 10 other people before they know that they're sick. And that's the problem with COVID, just as it was the problem with influenza back in 1919. We may have better facilities now, better medical facilities. At least that's true for wealthy people. Um, We may have better technologies, you know, access to better technologies. At least that's true for people like Donald Trump. Um, We may have access to better drugs, at least people who can afford them. But (laughs) those things aren't going to help you 
There's nothing that's going to stop that virus from jumping from one person to another. It's just a question of what they do after that. And even then, even if you're president of the United States, even if you've got all the advantages and you have teams of scientists working on you, trying to keep you alive, using the latest technologies and the latest therapies, and including experimental therapies, um, there's still a good chance that you're not going to survive this or that you're going to have very severe health impacts that will affect you for the rest of your life. And that's another thing, right? I mean, Woodrow Wilson had a stroke. It didn't kill him, but it debilitated him. And they carried on his administration with him essentially disabled. I mean, it's, you know, it's not true that things that don't kill you make you stronger. That's not necessarily true. That may be true in, you know, superhero cartoons, but it's not true in real life. Sometimes things that don't kill you make you sick and they hobble you and they ruin the rest of your life and they make you disabled. Seen it plenty of times. That's why I avoid it like the plague, because frankly, it's the plague. And for me, it could mean a death sentence. For my wife, it could mean a death sentence. For those around me, it could be, it could be a death sentence. And so I take it very seriously. And I would recommend that everyone else take it seriously and take all reasonable precautions. I know, you know, for people like Don, Donald Trump Jr., this is like, pronouncements like this is like sending him to the gulag. Yeah. Whatever. If that's the hill you want to die on, great. But don't make that decision for other people. It's a reasonable precaution to take, to wear a mask, to wash your hands, to keep yourself separate from other people, and to observe just minimal precautions. It's all you got to do. Anyway, so yeah, our president is in the hospital. Um, it's shocking, but you know, it was also wasn't the only really kind of gobsmacking event of the week, right? We had a presidential debate and incidentally, um, it seems likely that the president may have been infected at the time that he went to that debate. Now, uh, we're told by the debate moderator, Chris Wallace, in an interview right after, um, in the days following the debate, that um, the president and his family had not um, submitted to um, COVID testing uh, on their way in. Um, they had arrived late, and so there was a bit of a, uh, what Chris Wallace termed a honor system. The assumption was that they had all been tested before they got there. Um, he may well have had it by then. He certainly had it when he did the fundraiser. Um, I think it was on Thursday. I forget exactly which day this was, but it was right after he had found out that Hope Hicks had been um, infected. And I think he was aware that he was he was uh, COVID positive at that point. But he uh, he went to a fundraiser. And there were a bunch of, you know, heavy wallet folks who wanted to hobnob with the president at $250,000 a plate. And those people were all exposed. And rumor has it they were calling the White House freaking out subsequent to that. 
And, you know, who can blame them, right? But anyway, the debate, um, it's been termed, you know, like the worst debate ever. <laughs> I have to say, I watched that debate and I, I couldn't, I actually listened to it more than I watched it. I just couldn't look because it was so painful. Not so much what uh, Trump was saying. I expect him to be a jackass, and he was tremendously a jackass from one end of it to the other. Um, Chris Wallace had very poor control over that. But, you know, I mean, in all honesty, what do you do to shut the president of the United States up, right? If the president of the United States is going to act like a five-year-old, there isn't very much anything, very much of anything that anyone can do about it. Um, and that includes a Fox News host. I think I made the point um, in a couple of different ways on, on my blog. If you go to big-screen.net and uh, check out our uh, our blog, um, just look under my political rants. My most recent posting um, was about the debate and some of the, some of the money uh, Joe Biden left on the table, in my humble opinion. Um, but again, you know, he's, Joe's never been a great, debater um and his uh powers are somewhat diminished his rhetorical powers are somewhat diminished as he's gotten older he's he seems more elderly than he is in a lot of ways uh but he had a couple of good lines nevertheless uh it was it was a clusterfuck and i think i think that's kind of like a universal opinion i don't i can't think of anyone who really thought that not only was that a good example of a presidential debate, but I don't think anyone thought it was anyone's greatest performance. <laughs> uh, not Trump's, not Biden's. But Trump made a tremendous jackass out of himself, as he often does. And my guess is that it didn't change anyone's mind. But uh, probably the... um the most useful commentary I heard all week on the election, on the impending election, uh, was something that was shared by uh, Sam Cedar on the Majority Report on Friday. Um, he included a clip of Nina Turner on, I think it was on a podcast with uh, Robert Reich. And uh, Nina was talking about essentially what the project was for first defeating Trump and then moving on to other things in that order. And I just want to take the liberty of playing this because I thought it was, I thought she made a very good argument. I think Sam thought so too. Hate to be too parasitic on, on the work that he and his good people do, but I wanted to share this. I'm going to accept what you're saying because I, I don't believe that vote shaming works. I mean, that's for me. I, I just don't believe that you can talk down to people and tell them that they're wrong and how they feel. A lot of their feelings also, Doc, are rooted in real life examples. So it's not just a feeling. They also understand whether or not their material conditions have changed or the material conditions of their parents or their grandparents or their neighbors or their friends. I mean, right now, the millennial generation and some of the Z's on the older end, and when we say young people, I mean, we're really talking 45 years and younger, 
some people, maybe not in that 45 year category, but in their 30s, have had to move back home with their parents. So through their lived experience, their material conditions have not changed much. But to say to them and to say to them, clearly what you're feeling is real. But there is a way for us, the collective us, to take control. And you might not see the change immediately, but in a representative democracy, you get to voice your opinion through the vote. And that voting is only one part of the process. So what I say to people, Doc, I say, you mad as hell? Good. I still want you to go to vote. You disappointed about the two choices? Good. So am I. I still want you to get out there to vote. And then after you vote, then you that's only the first part of the process. We have to actively be engaged in our communities, not just on the federal level, but the state level. We got census. We got lines that are going to be redrawn and also on your local level of government. So voting is the beginning. It is not the end. And you can get out there and we will fight like hell and hold people accountable. Because sometimes when we talk about voting, we don't say to the voter, you have a right and a responsibility to hold the people you elect to office responsible. And if they don't respond to you, then that's another comment. That's another conversation. But in this moment, we have two dragons to slay, but we got to slay neo-fascism first. Doc, and you and I talked about that a lot. Okay. That's, uh, in my opinion, that's the reason why uh, Nina Turner is kind of a national treasure, (laughs) is what she's saying right there. Especially that last point about slaying the two dragons. Neo-fascism first. Neoliberalism after that um see here's the thing and here's the reason why i think that makes sense uh i think that makes a lot of sense and uh and and i i think she's right about you know not approaching skeptical voters uh skeptical potential voters in a kind of a you know we're going to school you away right that's not appropriate that's not appropriate, right? People have good reasons for being disaffected. I understand. Um, and we should all understand that. We should all understand why this is a challenge. But we need to make the argument. We need to try to convince them in some way that this is a fight worth having. That it does make a difference. And her point about slaying the neo-fascist dragon first and then going after the neoliberal dragon is particularly salient because we have to remember fascism has to be stopped. Autocracy has to be stopped because it is by definition anti-democratic. Neoliberalism is a scourge and it's it causes tremendous misery. But it's also something that can be stopped through the democratic process. More participation by by workers and more engagement by workers and by, by ordinary people and by poor people and by the masses is the best way to fight neoliberalism. And neoliberalism falls when it's confronted We've seen that. We've we've done that in 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 small ways 
and in large ways over the years. The equivalence of neoliberalism. We saw it in the 1930s and the 1940s. We saw it in the 1960s. I mean, you know, not neoliberalism, but the <laughs> the precursors of neoliberalism. We've seen it um, in recent decades um, in the Occupy movement. We've seen it in the the change of attitudes um, of people towards things like single payer health care. We don't have single payer yet, but people are in favor of it. We have public opinion on our side. That took work. It will take more work to get the legislation and to get to get the benefit in place. It will take more work to expand uh, Social Security, to expand um, support for housing, um, all the things that we care about, right? But those are things that yield to greater democracy and greater democratic participation and more engagement, more sustained engagement. Fascism, it's hard to fight that way because it is, by definition, an anti-democratic movement, right? I mean, if we, <laughs> if we allow the logic of the Trump um, of, of the Trump movement to prevail, if we allow this to continue, we're going to lose our voice. They are, you know, you know, it's not just Trump, it's the Republican Party, but it's this kind of rightward march that's been um, underway for decades now, particularly in the last couple of decades. And as it moves forward, we get more and more marginalized. The majority in this country gets more and more marginalized. And the end goal is, it's pretty easy to see, is just to create minority rule in the United States. A white minority rule in the United States. And to perpetuate that for the foreseeable future. And that's going to require greater and greater levels of autocracy and unaccountability and marginalization and, you know, disaffection of voters, um, exclusion of people from the political process. It's systematic and it's past a certain point. It's practically irreversible. I don't know if anyone's noticed, but, you know, fascist regimes... <laughs> Uh, they they can be very successful, right? The Germans in the 30s were very successful. Uh, it took a war to stop them, right? But in terms of domestic politics, they ran the table. They ran the table. Same thing in Italy. And you, you can see neo-fascist movements, you know, sort of having the same level of success in modern uh, times in countries around the world. Look at India. Here in the United States. In Brazil. 
uh, you know, it's in Russia. Um, authoritarianism is is just on the march, and it's just hard to defeat. And the only opportunity to really stop it is before it it gains, you know, it gains even more control over our institutions, over society. We are at kind of an inflection point now, it seems to me. We can either stop it here and turn it back and stand up and be vigilant from now on, (laughs) keeping it from realizing its goals. Or, you know, we can just throw up our hands and say, we don't care, there's no difference between uh, the Republican movement and the opposition movement, and just let them eat our lunch and let them take over this country and turn it into a minority white rule country. Um, that's, that is fundamentally undemocratic. This is something that, you know, I, I think this, this is kind of what, you know, Nina Turner is talking about here. It's, <laughs> I, I don't think she might disagree with me if she heard me saying this, but what I get from what she's saying is simply that we have to take care of this first. We have to stop them before, before they, they push us past a point of no return. And I think we're very close to that. So along with everything else that we have to do, and obviously, you know, if you deny Trump another term, and you turn back um, essentially the forces of neo-fascism and you put it back in the box from which it came and you keep that box, the lid on the box um, for the rest of all of our lives and beyond. (laughs) It's a big task. Um, With your free hand, you need to start fighting neoliberalism, right? Because we don't want to go just from from facing down fascism to some kind of you know um, hyper capitalist order, you know that puts us all in a box, an economic box. That I think is a hard fight, but it's not as it's not as potentially hard as the fight against fascism once fascism has established itself. I know I'm throwing the term fascism around a lot. Shorthand. Bear with me, people. Bear with me. Anyway, I just wanted to share that and uh, just say um, as we stand here with our president in the hospital and uh, an uncertain future, as always, seems to change every week. God knows by the time this episode is posted uh, on Tuesday or so. Um, I don't know what the reality is going to (laughs) be at that point. Um, Maybe you can uh, chime in and tell me what your thoughts are. Maybe you can let me know what's going on. (laughs) I may have my pillow over my head by that point, but trust me, I am going to vote in this election if it's the last thing I do. And I recommend that you do that and that you bring about 10 people with you. 
That's my recommendation. I'm asking nice. I'm trying to be nice about it. Nina's right. Anyway, that's all I got to say. I want to hear what you have to say. As I said before, you can go to anchor.fm slash strange sound and leave a one minute voicemail for me. Um, There's a link there for that. There are links for our social media properties, including a Facebook landing page. We're on Twitter at strange sound pod. Um, The link is on the strange sound.fm slash strange sound site. Um, there's also a YouTube link, but that again, as I've said before, that's really just, um, replays of, of my audio episodes with a, uh, just a still image, uh, hopefully do other things with that later on. Again, it's just me. So (laughs) I'm not doing very much at this point, just recording this hopefully on a weekly basis. And I hope to keep, I hope to continue at least through the election and beyond. We'll see. By all means, push back. Let me know what you think. Uh, Be glad to hear from you. This has been Strange Sound, episode 31. I'm Joe. Thanks for joining me. We'll see you next time.